It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to New Books and Communication Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nathan Birma. Jack Benny was one of the first crossover stars in broadcast comedy, rising from the vaudeville circuit to star in radio, film, and television. Kathy Fuller Seeley chronicles Benny's career in her book, Jack Benny and the Golden Age of American Radio Comedy, published by University of California Press in 2017. The book recently received a special jury prize in the Theater Library Association's Annual Book Awards. I'm joined by Kathy fuller Seely, author of Jack Benny and the Golden Age of American Radio Comedy. Kathy, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for your time. Well, thank you, Nathan. I'm very happy to be here. And congratulations on an award I understand you have just won from the Theater Library Association, and you're about to take a trip to receive that award. Tell us on what you expect uh, this week. Oh, well, yes, I get to go to the um, New York Public Library at Lincoln Center, where um, the Theater Library Association gives awards for the best book they think in performance in the theatrical world and the uh, the best book in uh, performance in recorded media. And it's called the Richard Wall Memorial Special Jury Prize. And I'm just very glad to get it. Always glad to see Jack Benny uh, rewarded or uh, acknowledged for his talents. And if people like my book, yay. So. Well, congratulations again. And I wanted to start by asking you what drew you to Jack Benny. You talk about coming upon his television appearances in the 1970s, and that led you, I guess, to to understand his radio career that was at the root of that of those television appearances. Well, How well, did you make the connection? Well, it's, I, um, another strain of interest was in popular culture of the 30s. Um, I was uh, 10 years old in 1970 and um, saw all those marvelous old black and white 1930s movies on TV. And I asked my grandmother to get me a big book on a 1930s popular culture. And it had a chapter on radio as well. And I saw a photograph of Jack Benny about to wail, engaged in battle with Fred Allen. And I said, I want to know more about these people. But there was also a marvelous um, Warner Brothers cartoon on Saturday mornings called the Ma- the house that the mouse that Jack built, excuse me. And uh, some of your listeners may remember this one where uh, Jack, Mary, Rochester, Don, and the whole gang are portrayed as mice uh, who live in Jack Benny's house. And um, again, it was something, I said, gosh, this guy seems funny. And I also saw him on uh, like the I Love Lucille Ball's show and various specials. And so back in the day, there wasn't an easy way to get old radio shows. And I found a magazine, somebody was had a catalog where you could order half-hour episodes of Jack Benny's old radio show for $7 for one cassette tape with two shows on it. And that was a lot of babysitting money back in the day. But I, I saved my pennies. And I've got about 15 cassettes worth and forced my little brothers to listen to them with me. And um, so that's kind of how it started. It's uh, so wonderful today that his radio shows are, um, are now so available. You can listen to them on YouTube. You can hear them on Sirius Radio. They're free at, various, at many places on the Internet. So it's a better time than ever to like old Jack Benny radio shows. Now, your previous books have been on film history, and that all falls under that banner that you just mentioned of 30s culture and this kind of lost era in early 20th century media. How different was it studying radio as opposed to previously studying film history? 
Well, what a great question. Thanks. Um, the curious thing is the way it's set up on in universities and colleges is there are departments of film study that might be in an English department or, or they look at the art of film. And the only place that radio and, and television history gets done is in communication departments. So um, people who know one sort of history usually don't know the other. And so I took it upon myself. I was very glad, but it took me about 10 years to learn everything about radio history to feel that I uh, could, you know, try and uh, write something sort of complicated, but uh, hopefully more correct than, than incorrect. So um, it took a lot of doing between listening. To, um, there are about 750 extant Jack Benny half hour radio shows. So that's an awful lot of work to listen to those. And then another thing that's so helpful today is that many of the, the trade journals uh, for the entertainment industry, like Variety, um, have been digitized and they're available online. So um, I could do all kinds of research and reading, even from my own office desk or home desk about the kinds of, you know, about the reporting about how Benny's radio show was going. Um, there are fan magazines, even radio fan magazines now that have been digitized. So I could learn more about what the public back in the day found out about Jack Benny and thought about Jack Benny. And that was uh, very exciting to be able to get into that detail. You start your look at Benny by talking about his vaudeville career. He was on the vaudeville circuit for, I guess, about 20 years. Uh, I guess first as Benjamin Kubelski, his birth name, and then later, a.k.a. Jack Benny. Tell us about his act, his persona, his character that he honed on the vaudeville circuit and how it lay the foundation for his radio career. Oh, another marvelous question. You're, you're right. It was his 20 years of his career, even before he got into radio. Well, he started as a quite a talented um, violin player. And Benjamin Kubelski, um, his parents were sort of lower middle class, but they were not the impoverished people of the Lower East Side of, of uh, New York City, where so many of the other great Jewish American comedians grew up. So um, Jack, uh, Benny Kubelski had a, a fair, comfortable childhood. And as they said, his parents discovered he had musical talent and they wanted, like anything, for him to be a professional concert, serious musician. Well, Jack uh, says in his autobiography that he just didn't want to practice that hard, that he just uh, he, he loved music, but he also liked playing and running around and being with people. And he just did not have that drive to practice and hone his craft as much as a a uh, symphony physician would. He also didn't much like school. Uh, maybe today we'd say he had ADHD. I don't know, but he, but he was also impatient. And so he was able to, he dropped out of school at 16. And one of his first jobs was working, playing the violin to accompany silent movies at a, a small movie theater there in Waukegan, Illinois. Um, there he met well, uh, not only did he meet his first partner, but he also met the Marx Brothers. I found this out recently, and I thought it was fascinating. So he's playing the, the little theater, showed um, one real comedies and drama films, but they also had occasional vaudeville acts. And um, Minnie, Mar Minnie Palmer, Minnie Marx, the mother of all the Marx Brothers, had about 12 young people in the show, and she brought it through all the theaters in the Chicago and um, um, Michigan and Indiana area. She met young Benny Kubelski and said, wow, you pick up music quickly. You're sprightly. You're talented. Join my troupe. And so Jack Benny could have actually been one of the Marx brothers, but his parents would not let him go on the road. Nevertheless, just a few months later, the theater changed hands where he played in Waukegan and the woman uh, uh, who had played the piano at the theater, had some vaudeville experience, and she says, Benny, let's go out, let's make an act together. I'll play the piano and I'll dress nice, and, and you just play the violin and it'll be an all-musical act. And um, uh, uh, they were very successful. They were out on the road for two to three years. But this is when, as you say, um, Je uh, Benjamin Kubelski started getting in trouble for his name. Well, show people are very particular about their names, and they, they really um, are a worry if another performer has a name that sounds too much alike. And there were 
um, mechanisms. Uh, you could, the Vaudeville Performers Protective Association had a list, and you could register your name. And once you'd done that, you were able to sort of threaten and bully other people into changing their names, especially if they were younger and just starting out. So there was a prominent um, violinist named Jan Kubelik, K-U-B-E-L-I-K, Jan with a J, um, and and he said, Ben Kubelski is much too close to Kubelik, and you play a violin. So Benjamin Kubelski um, changed his name to Ben K. Benny, took his first name as his last. So um, he, he performed with um, his first partner and then another partner. So he was Ben K. Benny for about 1917, to, over 10 years, maybe up to 11 years. Um and then he was in the, uh, drafted into the Navy, uh, back as Benjamin Kubelski again. He really got his, his big uh, performance break when the um, group of sailors at the Great Lakes Naval Station, which also happened to be in Waukegan, Illinois, uh, put on a big show for charity to raise money to build um, uh, military veteran hospitals. And um, their Jack or Ben K. Benny, um, started out just playing the violin in this show, but another performer said, hey, you play a, a violin co- funny in a comic manner. Here we need somebody to play a small part in a, in a comedy skit during the show. Read these lines. And Ben K. Benny read those lines, and he got laughs. And so that opened a whole new world to him, and he started what he would do over the next 10 years of his of career in vaudeville is greatly increase the comedy and greatly decrease the violin playing until he was just coming out on a stage holding the violin because he was insecure of what to do with his hands but after so um, he makes a big uh, name for himself um in these charity shows during the war and after the war he gets out and he's ben k benny again and another performer who was senior to him, but it turns out later they would be friends, this other fellow named Ben Burney, B-E-R-N-I-E, was a um, an orchestra leader uh, of renown who told a few funny jokes and he played a violin. And Ben Burney said, no, 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 Ben K. Benny is much too like my name. Change it again. Ben K. Benny was, was pretty depressed at this point. He's going, why can't I have my own name? And he was talking over with a friend who said, look, all the members of the Navy, all the recruits, they're known as Jackies. So why don't you just be Jack Benny since you're a Naval veteran? And and Ben K. Benny thought about that and said, okay, I'll do it. So that's how Jack Benny's name was born in about 1920. So, but, but after that, he was still in vaudeville for 12 more years. He was a um, not the most famous star um, in vaudeville and then eventually a few um, Broadway reviews, but he was he was among the top five. Um, his act in vaudeville, as I said, as he moved to telling more jokes and playing the violin almost never, um, he, uh, two things, he was self-deprecating and, and sort of real and honest. Other comics of the time had come out in baggy pants, almost clown-type costumes, you know, with paint on their face and outrageous costumes. Some of them had been very physical, slapstick kind of humor, beating each other up with, you know, um, uh, 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 fake boards and throwing pies in other comics' faces. Um, Jack Benny uh, created a character who dressed very elegantly in a dinner suit or, a, you know, a, a tuxedo and came out and whether he was playing the violin or just holding it, he came out and he was sort of soft-spoken so he didn't yell. He, but um, he was sort of bright and chipper, kind of a, a very assimilated Midwestern middle class kind of guy, talking about the bad luck he had dating girls and, um, and what it was like to roll into each new town. Um, it turns out he was following the path of the first great master of ceremonies, a, a role that would um, basically turn into what we think of as the talk show host. And that person was Frank Fay. We've completely forgotten Frank Fay today. We remember that he was the first husband of Barbara Stanwyck. But Frank Fay was an elegant Irish-American fella who was one of the first ones to put on that tuxedo, to just come out on the stage as one person and just tell stories. 
Um, now, the big difference between Jack Benny and the guy he patterned himself after, Frank Faye was one of the biggest jerks of all time, very much an egotist. He could slay any a heckler in the audience, but he was just full of himself and, and made a lot of enemies off stage. Jack Benny decided to turn that around, have the elegance of Frank Faye, and tell stories, but on the other hand, be sort of um, quieter and more, a little more self-deprecating. Um, Jack Benny played the palace in New York theater, the pinnacle of vaudeville, uh, many times from about 1925 on. And as he was known as someone they brought in someone to sort of to be a master of ceremonies, to stand out there and tell some jokes, to interact with and introduce all the other acts, to pull the show together like we do a talk show host today. So it's, it's even though this is before his radio career, I'm interested that Benny was um, innovating even back then. But they were the qualities that you would think would work very well on the new medium of radio. Um, throwing pies in somebody else's face, you can't do very well on the radio. Yelling and screaming doesn't go over very well on the radio. Um, so he was in a, a he had the right skills. But vaudeville was in decline. It was dying, given the one-two punch of talking motion pictures, which drew a lot, which were a lot cheaper to go to, and drew a lot of people away from vaudeville, and the um, the Great Depression. Everybody was broke, and it cost a fair amount of money to go to a vaudeville show. Um, it only cost a little bit of money to go to the movies, but then here comes this newest invention, radio, and if you can get a cheap set, you can just stay home and listen to entertainment. So. Jack Benny, in the late in the early 1930s, was in a tough place. Media were declining all around him, but here was this new medium radio. And Jack got in on May 1932, and 1932 was the first year was the big year in which um, a number of radio programs switched from just being musical sort of dance and concert musical programs to bringing in these vaudeville comics. So every major sponsor was um, experimenting with vaudeville comics, and that's how Jack sort of stumbled uh, into a job on the radio. You talked about how Jack Benny's persona on the vaudeville circuit was self-deprecating, and that would prove to become central to the comedic formula that you say he developed in his radio program. He set himself up after a first, after some initial years where he would land the biggest zingers. You say he turned that around and he put himself out as the butt of the jokes that his supporting cast members would land at his expense. Why did that formula work to give his supporting cast the biggest laugh lines? You asked the best questions. Well, as far as I could piece it together from the evidence I could find of other shows happening in 1932 and what I could find in the trade papers and a little bit of Jack's own reminiscence, um, this was his creative solution to this huge problem that none of the vaudevillians entering radio had really come to grips with. They were just glad to have a job. But what they hadn't quite understood about how radio was so different was uh, when you're on the vaudeville circuit, you could hone 15 minutes of your best joke, you know, your best stand-up routine. As I say to my, my 18-year-old freshman students today who don't know from vaudeville or radio, but if I say stand-up comedians, they get it. So back in the day, you got your best 15-minute routine, and it would last you all year because every week or, or sometimes two or three times a week, you were moving to a different theater and a different audience. So, as I said, one really great, well-honed routine in many different audiences. Well, here are these um, vaudeville comedians come to the new form of radio, and they are getting 6 million and 10 million listeners in one night. And so Jack found this out his first few weeks on the air. His first sponsor was Canada Dry. And the first week on the air, he gave out his best 15 minutes that he had from his last year on the vaudeville circuit, and he did great. And then the next, he was actually on twice a week. At the next show, he says, okay, I'll use up the material from the year before that. Well, you can't, he didn't, he, it didn't take too many performances to go, oh my heavens, I've used up my entire career's worth of material and they want me on twice a week for a half an hour. What am I going to do? Well, this is where a number of other comedians, um, Eddie Cantor is one of them. Joe, uh-oh, the people who know are going to be able to... to um, so other comedians whose names I've forgotten at the moment, um, uh, they went for a system of just telling a lot of different jokes. 
and they relied, there was a, um, a radio writer, a joke smith who helped them. His name was Dave Friedman, and he had assembled a card catalog file of more than 100,000 jokes, each written out on little cards. And to put together um, a radio show for a comedian, what he would do was like pull out 20 or 25 of the jokes from various parts of his card deck, change a few words, and that was the show, just telling one joke after another. Well, Jack decided he didn't want to do that. And the other brilliant thing he had done was get some writing help because Jack could write his own material, but there was no way he was going to be able to produce the sheer amount needed each week. So he went to a radio writer friend of his who he had bought some things from in the past named Harry, Harry Kahn, C-O-N-N. And the two of them together developed what quickly caught on as a very popular show, what Jack did kind of an extreme, but to just not tell joke after joke after joke, what Jack did at Harry's urging was to turn the other people in this small radio um, production booth into other characters on the radio. He, t he pulled over the band leader, George Olson, the, um, the chanteuse, the singer, on the show was, was George Olson's wife, Ethel Chute. He pulled over the, um, uh, one of the revolving round of uh, radio announcers. All of them stuck together in this small glassed-in room. He pulled them over to the microphone and started talking to them like real people. So he then had, he and Harry wrote lines for these, turning them into characters. And what they basically developed right away was what we would think of as a workplace situation comedy. So they turned it into a comedy dialogue show about people who happened to work putting on a radio show that had some music in it. And that turns out to be genius because um, in that way, there'd be an endless supply of jokes. But the jokes would come from everyone's interactions um, instead of just three ducks walking to a bar, you know, those kind of things over and over again. So while the people who, the other comics who depended just on telling a stream of jokes pretty quickly fell old and stale. Um, uh, Benny's comedy um, continually seemed uh, fresh and new, especially as um, uh, Jack and Harry Kahn started to d um, develop these other people into characters. Um, uh, originally, it was George Olson, the band leader, who was the tight wad. This is very funny, and it took about two to three years of Benny, and he had quite a number of cast changes along the way. But it was about in a 1934 that um, the, the Jack Benny character becomes the one that everybody tells the jokes about. Um, uh, so at the beginning, he's, in 1932, at the beginning of the show, he's the normal one, and all the other performers on the show are a little bit crazy. But by 1934, Jack and Harry Kahn take it even further and turn Jack into the sort of craziest character of them all. And all the other underlings on the show get to annoy him, or call him on the carpet, like his wife, uh, his offstage wife, Mary Livingston. Or, you know, uh, so it just becomes a, a sort of genius show that becomes very flexible. Well, speaking of flexible, you have a fascinating treatment of Jack Benny and his gender identity, or the gender identity of some of the characters and personas he portrayed. So first of all, on his radio show, just his um, apparent lack of masculinity or virility that became uh, the subject of punchlines. But then off his radio show, he would make appearances where he actually cross-dressed for characters, including the leading character of Charlie's Aunt, a Broadway show that was made into a film. And he appeared as Gracie Allen with George Burns. Uh, tell us about these portrayals and how much or how little trouble they stirred up. Um, but the fascinating thing was um, to see um, Jack's continual enjoyment of it. I'm not one who likes to label a person who can't answer back for themselves of any particular gender identity from everything that I could see. And a few, some previous academics have gone out on limbs and sort of labeled Jack straight or gay or, or whatever. But, um, and there, that's, everybody's entitled to their opinion. What I found looking 
at, at, at everything I could find was that Jack liked to be a trickster. He liked to keep everybody guessing, and he was very comfortable in his own skin. He was a slim, attractive man who, yes, they always joked about. He had legs. You could put him in a dress and take him anywhere. He had um, a, a sort of slightly feminine way of walk. He had a fastidiousness about him. He was a fantastic dresser, and he was never going to be Mr. Macho. So while well, he, he, he embedded that at the center of his character, which at some points where he has to be the boss of a radio show, he becomes a very ineffectual um, uh, sort of boss. So a sort of failure as a man in that respect, he, he loved playing with this idea of cross-dressing, but the culture sort of changed around him. In the late 30s, he, on the radio show with his cast members, did a parody of a, a popular MGM film called The Women, which starred uh, Norma Shearer and Joan Crawford and Rosalind Russell and a bunch of other women as New York socialites whose husbands leave them. It's a comedy by Claire Booth Luce. And um, Jack and the men on his show all played the female characters. So they were doing cross-dressing and drag on the radio. And so it's a fun show to listen to from fall of 1939. All of these things are available on YouTube. So your listeners, all you have to do is type in Jack Benny and Jack Benny and say the women or Jack Benny and Charlie's aunt or Jack Benny and Gracie Allen. And you'll see the wonderful uh, members of the YouTube community have made all these things um, uh, visible on YouTube. So as I said, in the radio show, they had in 1939, the big joke was, oh, ho, ho, it's men wearing clothes, uh, women's clothes, like undergarments or, you know, hose or having to wear makeup. And for audiences in the 1930s, it wasn't horrific, but it was just sort of unimaginable. And, and from what I can tell, both that and in his 1940, I think, 41 or 42 portrayal in a, a Fox, 20th Century Fox film of Charlie's Aunt. Well, that's a circa 1890 old British farce that is about, uh, it's a very slapstick farce about uh, supposedly, you know, college boys dressing up as little old ladies where there is much rump kicking and, uh, you know, smoking of cigars. And so it's, it's all considered sort of high circus comedy. And that's how Jack Benny played it in the movie. The advertising for that film in 1942 as well said the funniest thing about the movie was just seeing a man in woman's clothing, even though this would be a, a little old lady's dress and he's wearing gray curls. But for audiences, apparently in the 30s and the 40s, gender roles were so uh, strictly determined and divided that just the sight of a woman in pants was, was laughable, and the sight of a man in a dress was laughable. Well, things changed after World War II. As we get into the post-World War II era and into the 50s, um, gender roles became even more divided as um, female characteristics. Uh, women were held up to be sex symbols like Marilyn Monroe or Jane Russell, and men were supposed to be, you know, uber uh, what do I want to say? Um, uh, uh, masculine men, hypermasculine, like a, you know, a John Wayne. And so Jack still liked to play this, you know, guessing game, these teasing kind of things across the genders. Um, so there would be a lot of jokes on the radio show that sort of hinted, uh, played with, or raised little questions in audiences' mind about, like, all the men on the show sleeping in one train compartment together and the giggles that would cause. The most outrageous thing he did, this is outrageous to audiences of the early 1950s, was indeed Jack Benny dressed up as Gracie Allen, George Burns' wife and comic partner. Now, Milton Berle was, you know, was the king of television for often dressing up in drag. But Milton Berle would do Cleopatra or Milton Berle would do, uh, you know, I want to say Mae West. Milton Berle would do broad burlesques of anything that it meant to be feminine, to be making fun of that. And that made everybody, made audiences laugh, but assured them that men were still very different from women and superior to women. Well, now Jack's um, uh, dressing up as Gracie Allen uh, really unnerved and unsettled a lot of people because Jack went for the exact reproduction of Gracie. The dress, elegant dress, high heels, 
um, stockings with the seams in the right place, uh, exactly her movements and exactly her makeup. As I said, and and that as I said, unsettled people who said, "Oh no, the divisions between what is male and what is female, heterosexual male and female, are wider than ever." How dare this man, being obviously enjoying it and doing such a good job of it? Well, I found in Jack Benny's own papers, which are housed at the University of Wyoming out at Laramie, he kept all the newspaper uh, television critics' reviews of the show. He did this. He had done it originally for a private men's club out in Hollywood. I mean, a, um, a private all-male organization of entertainers, which, are, again, had a long tradition of, of doing sort of drag performances and making fun of women. But Jack did it on an early television show, I think 1952 or 1953. He did it originally live, and it's in black and white. And as you said, it was so shocking to the American television audiences and critics um, because uh, when he came out as when Jack dressed as Gracie, because he'd spent the first half of the show behind a screen, just making jokes about um, things like on which side around does the bra go, where would the padded bits go, how you know, um, how do I get the stockings on, how do I put the girdle on, and then he shows up this this gorgeous apparition doing a perfect Gracie Allen, and half the critics thought this is the funniest thing I've ever seen. Half the critics said, this is shameful and awful and makes me feel uncomfortable. It's terrible. It was the most controversial show Jack Benny ever did. And he enjoyed it so much that the next year he repeated the performance when he could put it on film. And so luckily we have that one today to be able to watch. It's a very well put together, fast paced episode. And all these years later, it's still very funny, but it's quite something to imagine um, how uh, upset uh, some some conservatives in the 1950s got about it. So we talked about his supporting cast and how they got some of the biggest laugh lines. Uh, two of his most reliable cast members were his wife, Sadie Marks, who took on her stage name of Mary Livingstone, and Eddie Anderson, an African-American who played uh, Jack's valet, Rochester. Let me ask you about Mary first. Um, explain, as she emerged as a star on his show in the 30s, uh, what was progressive or advanced or unique about her role, her character on the program well i think mary gets a, a sort of bad rap and, and much of it is sort of well deserved um as a as a person she was kind of cold and standoffish and if you're a big benny fan it's real you know that's and her character on the show became one who constantly punctured um jack's big ego um so she was constantly putting him down and while on the show, she's just sort of vaguely a girlfriend, vaguely maybe a secretary, very undefined role. As I said, her, her sort of sharpness could turn some uh, listeners off, and today she is not very well remembered. So it was a pleasure, I thought, to try and take her character seriously. And what I found, or it seemed to me, that in the 1930s and 1940s, she had this, um, the Mary Livingston character had this incredibly interesting position of being able to, as I said, puncture the ego of, a, a, of someone who was her boss. What other woman, you know, the 1930s were filled with the, uh, the marvelous heroines of the movies, those, um, those uh, you know, comic and, and uh, uh, melodramatic heroines. Uh, from Katherine Hepburn to Rosalind Russell to Betty Davis to um, Barbara Stanwyck to Claudette Colbert um, to Carol Lombard, all these fantastic actresses who could talk that way to the leading man in the film during the in these romances where, you know, boy or Ginger Rogers with Fred Astaire when boy meets girl and, and they're not getting along. But in every one of those movies, by the end of the film, the woman falls in love and, you know, and come sort of under the spell of the leading man. And the films always end up with them engaged or kissing or about to be married. And that she, that, you know, that, that this young woman's moment of, of kind of, of liberation is over, that she's going to be, a, you know, a, a productive wife and mother. Um, well, since Mary never married Jack on the show, never settled down, you know, her story never had to end. Here's the sort of genius of weekly radio. Um, and yet the, the few other characters who were on radio or film 
and com- and um, I want to say complained or criticized like that were often um, depicted as heretics. Um, uh, you think there were uh, two, uh, Bob Hope's radio show had two whiny women called Brenda and Kobina, named after debutantes of the time. Um, Eve Arden was close. She got to play Armis Brooks um, in the 1940s and then in the 1950s on television. A similar character to Mary Livingston, but she had to be shown to be head over heels and, you know, um, stupid in love with a biology teacher and always being called on the carpet by her boss. Well, Mary never, almost never got called on the carpet. So if you're looking for a, you know, a, a small but uh, um, a feisty character on, on uh, radio in the 1930s and 40s, uh, you know, that's, I, I'm going to wave Mary Livingston's banner. Um, as I said, she doesn't have a whole lot of fans, but I'm fascinated by the opportunities her character had to act in a different way than the stereotypes that most women in radio or film were put into. And similarly, Eddie Anderson, one of the first major African-American stars of radio and later film, uh, what opportunities did he find and what limits did he find in uh, that 1940s, 1950s era? Well, I was so proud to be able to... um, write up this material and put it out there because Eddie Anderson has never not yet gotten all the credit he's due for his fame, for his accomplishments, for an incredible, incredibly successful career. And one that's, I think, because he didn't have a bigger career in films and two, because he worked for a white guy, you know, that's, uh, it, it was, but I, I tried so hard to understand the incredibly difficult position an actor like Eddie Anderson was in. Um, if uh, by the 1950s, if African-American culture would be all about, you know, um, protest for civil rights, stand up, don't put up with this stuff, um, which got a number of performers blacklisted or like Lena Horne sort of pretty much fairly much killed her um, film career by her refusal to take these roles. Eddie wanted to keep going. He wanted to keep persevering in the industry. I think he was in a very fortunate position in that the Rochester role on the Benny show is in a a unique position. Yes, he's a servant, but unlike Beulah or most all of the other servant roles in American film in the 30s and 40s and even into the early 50s, he never has to completely kowtow. He doesn't have to be an Uncle Tom. He, you know, um, what the genius of the Rochester part is that he can also speak truth to power, and he can also criticize the boss, who he calls boss most of the time and not Mr. Benny, um, within the um, incredibly limited parameters of, of how African-American culture could possibly interact with white culture before the conservatives would come in and, you know, start raging. Um, the Rochester role is simply amazing. And I think in part it's because it was not um, rerun on television. You know, I mean, the, the, all those years of the radio show have been sort of lost for a long time before now they've been able to come back through digitization and being available on the Internet. I'm hoping that um, uh, Eddie will get more credit for his incredible hard work. I hope that um, it's, it's really, really hard in contemporary culture to talk about these old roles because, as I said, of course, every once in a while, the writers would stick him with a really kind of deprecate, self-deprecating line. You know, um, in the beginning, he shot craps and lusted after chickens. Um, he did the Rochester character in the first year or two was saddled with quite a number of, of, of really bad stereotypes. But I'll give Benny and his uh, uh, other radio writers, this is the years after Harry Kahn was gone, credit for trying to do better. They didn't always, sometimes they fell flat on their faces, but they tried to create a character who could interact with more collegiality with white folks than was available almost anywhere else in in radio or film or even early television. So, as I said, um, Eddie Anderson worked very, very hard and long in a career where he didn't get a lot of credit. Um, Jack Benny made him a wealthy man, made him a very um, uh, well-to-do famous man, 
Um, but the price of that popularity was that he did not feel comfortable. He felt like his paychecks would end that if he stood up for, you know, if, that, if, that if he wanted to be the sort of lead spokesman for civil rights protest. And I don't, again, I don't want to be the one, I can never put myself in anybody else's shoes to say you should have done this or you shouldn't have done that. He had huge challenges. He had very difficult decisions to make. I think he, it seems to me that Eddie Anderson thought that the um, uh, visibility he was able to have on this highly rated show on radio and then a number of years in television, at least the first 10 years it was on the air, uh, Rochester played a major role. And I think he thought he was doing a lot of good for society by, by being in a collegial role uh, that, that of, you know, a friendship with his white employer. Um, others certainly felt differently, but as I said, it's, it's really impressive what he was able to accomplish. You have a chapter on Jack Benny's battles with sponsors, and the stakes were high because he didn't just have to find and please sponsors. He had to find and please title sponsors whose name would appear in the program and who would underwrite the entire uh, program. Explain how one of the early innovations that Jack Benny achieved was to work commercial material into his comedic act, not just say, okay, we're going to stop and read a commercial now, but to actually make that part of the joke, uh, which came with some risk, but he, he pulled it off. How did it work? Uh, that's, that was one of the biggest things I had to learn about radio. The difference from studying motion pictures was to understand that the radio broadcast industry in America was essentially commercial, that um, it wasn't NBC and CBS producing these shows. It was the advertising agencies who were um, paid by the sponsors to pull these programs together. Jack Benny is a bit of an exception in that from the very beginning, um, Jack said, it's my show. I want to write it. I want to create it. I want to be responsible for it. So whereas a num- ma- most other performers were just, uh, give me the lines. I'm a hired comic. You know, I'll work on writing my lines, but I will leave the rest of the show up to the sponsor and the ad agencies. Like I said, Jack really was what we today would call a, a showrunner really a producer of his own program. But indeed, from the very beginning, he learned that um, uh, that this was not like vaudeville, that radio's sponsors had to be pleased. And he ran into problems his very first weeks on the air. His first sponsor was Canada Dry Ginger Ale. And they were all about their um, uh, magazine ads of the day were all about the country club set. Um, you know, having an elegant glass of Canada Dry in between rounds of golf or games of tennis. And Jack decided to do, Jack and his writer, Harry Kahn, decided to do something um, very different. In spite of, there was a magazine back in the day called Ballyhoo, which was a kind of mad magazine for grown-ups in the early years of the Depression. And they found, and that was published in New York, and they were based out of New York. And so they said, let's make parodies of ads. Let's make fun of the ads. The time is ripe. Sophisticated listeners will get this. And so... Jack's early commercials for Canada Dry are indeed scattered. The, the, the comedy does not take a break in the middle of the show. Jack said, I think the comedy will work better if we just, instead of stopping for two minutes of seriousness in the middle, what if we can work it through? People will listen to it because people had started switching the dials whenever a boring commercial came on. He said this will keep people listening. But what he and Harry Kahn did at first were some pretty darn outrageous things. One of my favorite outrageous ones, they said, hey, we're the Canada Dry. We sent our Canada Dry spokesman to a factory. And they said a factory in Kentucky, I think. And they said, and we sort of tied up and blindfolded. 600 workers, and we beat them about the head at the factory, and we beat them about the shoulders, you know, with, with boards and things, and we tortured them, and we didn't give them anything to drink for like six weeks. And then we gave them a sip of Canada Dry, and they said it was a good drink. <laughs> and so um, Canada Dry, the sponsor, was outraged and horrified. They said, what about our country clubs? What about our, our tennis players and golf players? And Jack said, well, the, the advertising agency said, please, oh, please be patient. Look, we're getting all this mail. People in the audience think this is hilarious, but the sponsors never have much of a sense of humor. And um, uh, uh, he didn't last. He lasted seven months 
with Canada Dry. And then they just said, we can't take this anymore. You're yelling about Canada Dry. You're associating us with all these ridiculous things. Um, his next sponsor was Chevrolet. And he was on with Chevrolet, the car maker, for a year. And um, Chevrolet got a new, after a year, this is into spring 1934, and Chevrolet got a new CEO who liked polka music. And he didn't like comedy. He, t- he did not have a sense of humor either. And so this new president, CEO of, of uh, Chevrolet, just plain fired Jack Benny and put on polka music. Benny was so humiliated by that that in subsequent retellings of his career, he conveniently omitted the fact most of the time that he'd ever worked with Chevrolet. This is how upset he was about it. So um, by October 1934, he's been fired by his first three sponsors, who either uh, his third sponsor couldn't afford him anymore because it was the depths of the Depression. And so he's been trying to do these unusual, interesting things. But, as I said, he's getting a little bit of a stink about him, as in, oh, you know, he's the controversial one who doesn't, you know, who who doesn't, who wants to do something different with the advertising. As I said, sponsors are a very conservative lot. Um, so, in October 1934, he, kind of a last gasp for both him and the product who hired him. Jello Gelatin was a 40-year-old product in October 1934, but cost twice as much as any of the competition, especially royal gelatin, cost twice as much, but um, tasters said it tasted only half as good. So the product was rapidly sort of going down the, you know, into the dustbin of history. And the manufacturer, it was owned by the conglomerate General Foods. The company uh, uh, was introduced on advertising agency, like in the show Mad Men, an advertising agency made a pitch that says, we've got a last-ditch idea to save your company. And they said it's going to involve three things. One, get your chemist. Fix the flavor of the Jello. B, we're going to cut the price. You're just because We're just going to su- try and sell three times as much, so we're going to cut the price in half. And third, we're going to take, we're going to spend nearly a million dollars a year. Back in 1934, it was actually $750,000 a year. But that's an enormous amount of money. It was something like if Jell-O was five cents a box, it came to like one and a half pennies of every box of Jell-O was going for the advertising. And they said, we're going to put all the advertising basically into one bucket. We're going to start a radio show and we're just going to have it just say Jell-O, Jell-O, Jell-O. We're just going to hope for a miracle. Well, in October 1934, all the good comics were taken, but Jack had just been fired again by his third sponsor, could no longer, General Tire, could no longer afford in the middle of the Depression this expensive show. So the advertising agency Young and Rubicam said, okay, this is the best we got. We'll just do our best. And they said to Jack and his writers, uh, which it was still Harry Kahn in 1934, they said, find ways of involving the product in the comedy. And here again is the genius of Jack Benny and Harry Kahn. They started putting in, somebody counted up to 50 mentions of Jell-O every program. Uh, they would say, they would do a playlet on Romeo and jell Um Don Wilson, the announcer, his tie would have three delicious, three, all six delicious flavors on the colors of the tie. So they worked all the advertising slogans. Look for the big red letters on the box. Um, uh, it's great, um, you know, um, put into a mold with sliced bananas around it. They made Jell-O such a catchphrase of, of just uh, delightfully working it in, making fun of it, not taking the product seriously, not putting it up on a pedestal and going, oh, the magic product, but, but really playing with it. Combined with that, Don Wilson had a marvelous selling voice, and he talked to every woman in America in this sort of folksy Midwestern voice. And to- he could make Jell-O taste good just by describing it. And whenever I listen to those shows nowadays, I have to torture my husband by making Jell-O every night. <laughs> He's got to have something with cherry or orange Jell-O in it. And he goes, no, you're listening to Jack Betty again. But um, so that was the hope. And so this is the last Dick effort there, Hail Mary Pass or the company was going to go bankrupt. And so they're on the air in October, and the first month passes, and what they need is product sales to start going up. And it's not, because there was this um, accepted sort of deal, because, you know, radio was free to listen to. This is something my freshmen don't understand. What do you mean you don't have to pay a subscription for your media? 
But um, the the accepted um, rule for American radio audiences back in the day was if you enjoyed the program, you went out and bought the sponsor's product as a, as a kind of applause or approval. So the show's on, it's on a month, and sales have not moved. And the company is getting nervous. And they say, they come to Jack and Mary, and they say, we've got to give all of you a massive pay cut. We're just teetering. We've got about five more weeks until we're off the air and bankrupt. And Jack and Mary said, now, wait, that's not fair to the rest of the members of our cast and crew who all, you know, need to eat. So they said, Mary and I will work without pay, said Jack, but you keep everybody else on full salary. So it went three more weeks. So in the eighth week, finally, at the end of the second month, boxes of Jell-O started flying off the shelves. So the miracle happened. Sales of Jell-O went through the roof. Um, they eventually they were selling every possible box of Jello that could be made, and the company had to go out and buy a pudding company, and label it Jello Pudding to give Jack Benny something else to sell. The uh, sponsors were so grateful. So now they're out of the dumps. Now they're in the black because if you could just sell so many boxes, they made their money on high volume. So the the miracle had happened. And the general, the Jello and General Foods people had a party at Jack and Mary's New York apartment um, and gave them one of those big, like you'd won the lottery, a giant check for all their back pay. And the, the joke that Mary used to tell on herself was that the sponsor had sent over a caterer with a gigantic platter of Jello, and Mary had not been expecting it. And when a maid who was there to help serve the party shows up with this giant platter of jello. Mary loudly says, put that crap over there. <laughs> Not remembering that the sponsors were standing right next. To <laughs> so the eight years with jello were um, genius years for Benny. Uh, as I said, the, the growing problem for jello and, and this is by 1941 is that there were no way Jack. So Jack's show kept getting, I mean, more and more expensive. He wanted raises. You know, that's the show was at the top of the ratings, and he wanted to be compensated for that. But there was no way to make any more money on Jell-O. And, and um, so the company wanted to switch out and, and, and use the much cheaper um, Kate Smith and move Jack Benny to Grape Nuts Flakes. Well, Jack said, Grape Nuts Flakes is not funny. Jell-O is funny. Grape Nuts, not so much. And he almost left. He almost put his show up on the bidding block, and I think he almost went to Campbell's Soup. But but Jello finally you know, I mean, bent his terms because they knew it meant such big sales. Well, then if this was late 1941, then with the start of World War II, um, the first thing they did by February 1942 was ration sugar. So you couldn't sell any more Jello anyway because Jello's 90% sugar. And so they switched Jack Benny to Grape Nuts. He spent a year and a half with Grape Nuts. He was not a happy camper. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then he went, then he did go up for the highest bidder, and he ended up with his sponsor being Lucky Strikes. And George Washington Hill, the um, owner of the American Tobacco Company, was known as the most awful advertiser in all of radio. And Jack had been wanting awards for years that um, even groups that hated advertising said that Jack Benny's commercials were the least offensive and most pleasant of anything on all of radio. And he went from the nicest ads in all of radio to the absolutely worst offender in all of radio. So is it just, he, he had a genius of being able to um, sell things, to, to mix the a comedy content with the sales pitch in a way that I think producers today are going to have to figure out because we we may um, d switch through commercials or block the commercials or do anything in the world not to listen to the commercials, but the companies still want to advertise to us. And I, I think they could well take a, um, a, a many pages out of Jack Benny's book of finding um, innovative ways to get us to listen. So. So he was certainly a genius as a salesman and a genius at integrating that sales pitch into his content. Let's talk about his comedic genius. Just as a radio comedian, how did he make it work? And there's this question that kind of goes through the book, especially when you talk about radio critics. And uh, there was one critic who was insulting the show, saying the scripts just aren't very good. But he ends up paying a sort of backhanded compliment and saying, but Benny somehow makes it 
better. The, the, the product is better than the ingredients. How would you explain what made Jack Benny's show work so well and what was his comedic genius? Well, that's not an easy question because in, in part of that is the genius that you can't quite put your finger on it because if we could reduce it to, to numbers or exact directions, there would be other Jack Bennies. Um, I, I think there are performers today who do channel a lot of the things Benny does. But, um, yes, I, I loved, again, something that would be difficult to happen today is to have someone able to stay on the air on basically a single program for 23 years the way Jack did. And, indeed, um, I, I started that investigation into the power, the growing power of radio and television critics um, uh, because um, I, I learned that during World War II, well, Jack really got tired. The, the formula started to get tired and old. Um, um, his writers left. He was training some new ones. A number of his cast members had to go out and enlist in the war. Um, just so it kind of lost its spark and settled into mediocrity. Um, today they call it jumping the shark, you know, when a show has kind of outlived its usefulness. Um, were it around today, undoubtedly it would have been pulled off the air. It's, a, you know, it's a, again a, a miracle that Benny was able to prevail, and that's in part because of the conservatism of the sponsors. They said, we don't want to gamble on somebody new. If we know that even if he's losing some percentage points, that he's still drawing a regular audience, that's good enough for us, said the sponsors. They, they were terrified of trying anybody new. But that's what the new, um, a young radio critic um, who, who got out of the war and decided to um, become the first radio critic for the New York Herald Tribune, which was a very powerful paper like the New York Times back in the day. This fellow, John Crosby, uh, was only like 30, 32, 33, and he was just determined. He both wanted to make a name for himself, but he honestly, he loved entertainment, and he, he really saw that most of radio entertainment was relying on old, tired formulas that no one had innovated anything in 10 years, that the same programs, you know, that still there were no newcomers, nothing new. And he was really brave. Now, it sold a lot of papers and made him a pretty notorious and famous and feared person for being 32 years old. Um, but uh, in 1946 and 1947, uh, excuse me, well, I'll start in 44, 45, 46, 47, he really lays into the um, uh, the grand old men, if you will, the grand old entertainers of radio. He just can't stop whacking on uh, Bob Hope and Bing Crosby and Eddie Cantor and Jack Benny. The one comic he loved was Fred Allen, who indeed had a, a, a sort of intellectual vibe and always uh, did uh, uh, say interesting, innovative things on his show. But... Um, Crosby was uh, naming names and, and writing lists and saying, I'm not going to just uh, be a member of the industry and say everything is great. Keep at it. He says, um, I'm going to represent the audience and I'm going to represent sort of high criticism and we deserve better. Why can't there be better? And I think Jack Benny actually took that to heart. I, it was difficult to find actual sort of smoking guns. Of, I found a little bit of correspondence between them. But I did find some evidence that Jack Benny and his writers were acutely aware of what this critic Crosby and some of the others that were cropping up in, uh, especially in the papers in New York City. Um, and they really, and Benny and his writers really took it to heart. He started this, what I think even today would be an outrageous and controversial and dangerous kind of thing. Jack Benny started a contest called the I Can't Stand Jack Benny because contest where he asked members of the public to write in in like 50 words or less why they could not, why they didn't, why they hated Jack Benny, but why they couldn't stand it. And this is right after the end of World War II, you know, and, and Jack was a Jewish American. And, you know, on all the horrors of the Holocaust were becoming known in the paper. And, you know, on the, you know, the absolute horrors of anti-Semitism and, and killings and murders and hatred and racism. Um, and so he was, on the one hand, terrified that um, having a contest like this would um, open the floodgates for people to troll in the same way that we have awful people say awful things on, on Twitter and Facebook and all these social media today. But nevertheless, um, uh, uh, people, members of the audience, uh, found ways to be creative 
about it, to show their sort of affection for Benny. So instead of writing why Jack Benny was the best show on radio, they could tweak his character. Um, and, and they could be the critics of Jack Benny instead of his cast members. That, um, that stunt took, again, like the start of the Jell-O program, took a couple months after it was over to actually sort of kick in, but it brought renewed attention to the show. And his writers, at that, his, he had a, a bunch of writers in their second year, and they really just gelled. And I find it highly amusing that what Benny fans think of as the golden age of the Jack Benny radio show started in 1946, and that is 14 years after the program had started. What other, what other television show or performer, what, you know, a musical group, who hits their who hits their highest notes 14 years <laughs> into a show's existence? So, but, so um, a sort of miracle occurred, and if in part it's the, the nudge from this, the criticism of these critics who said, we deserve, we want better. Um, uh, um, Benny getting a second win and determined to do better. Writers coming up with some great new ideas, but um, uh, the shows of the late 40s and early 50s, the radio shows, are absolutely genius. And so I guess I'm grateful to the critics for um, uh, um, being truthful. Um, some of radio didn't change, and that's in part why television would take off. You know, that's, it's a shame. The end of the radio era kind of sputtered out, and the best of radio went to television. But, the, but in a way... Other bits of old-fashioned radio were not to be missed because they'd really become sort of really time-worn and old, and most of radio was not innovating anymore. So, as like I said, thank goodness Jack was able to make the transition to television because um, radio, the, the rest, the most of rest of radio just refused to try and do anything new and different, and they just sort of ruined themselves through just sort of bland sameness. Finally, the legacy that Jack Benny has still left. So it's a name that some people still recognize, and yet before this book, so much had been uh, lost or, or forgotten or neglected by uh, media historians, by comedy historians. Um, I imagine once you started studying Benny, you started seeing his influence, his legacy uh, everywhere on TV, on Saturday Night Live, on late night talk shows. Um, but what what can we trace uh, to his legacy? What what remnants of his comedic influence do we still see in uh, in media comedy today? Well, I I sure hope that 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 um that we can lead a a, a Benny Renaissance. How about that? A Benny Sense. Um, that's I I think his kind of of solo sort of stand up comedy that um um in front of the mic the the way he did it on radio and in the early years of television. I think it was so informal. It was so ingratiating. I think it's had quite a legacy on talk show hosts. Johnny Carson, for one, worshipped Jack Benny, even did his undergraduate senior thesis on Jack Benny and Fred Allen. And if you go to the University of Nebraska's uh, a website and you look at their library, they are so grateful to their alumnus, Johnny Carson, that they have, um, he created a radio recording for a senior honors thesis and they have posted it there and it's all a love letter to the comic abilities of Jack Benny. So um, one legacy, I think, is in the continuing popularity of late night talk show hosts um, and the, the, the fact that um, so many of them now are not only sitting behind a desk and talking to other people, but mixing in stand-up and interacting with audiences and things like that. I think you can see the spirit of Jack Benny in that. Another route is the continued popularity of sitcoms. Um, some sitcoms can be old and boring and formulaic, but there have still only maybe the Larry Sanders show or perhaps something like Arrested Development or Curb Your Enthusiasm. Very few shows had the audacious nature of Jack Benny's show because it could take place anytime, anywhere. It could, it was the workplace comedy that could become a fantasy comedy that could be, um, just so flexible. And I think in visual comedy, we so expect the people to remain in their own characters, like the characters, of the big bang theory or friends or something like that. I'm hoping that, um, what 
he and his group were able to do, um, especially in radio, will um, not only uh, 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 re-energize um, sitcoms on television, but the whole new realm of podcasting. My freshmen don't even own televisions. They've given up both on network TV and they've given up on cable. All they do is watch the streaming services, but they're really into podcasts and they think they've invented podcasts. I love this. So I'm having a, my most success today with undergraduate students, introducing them to the world of, of radio performance. And because so many of them, it's so inexpensive and easy to get involved in podcasting at its sort of lowest or easiest levels, that they are seeing this as a place where they can be creative right now. And so um, I do things like teach them about the, the language of radio comedy, what kind of words are funny, what kind of rhythms are funny, how do you work in a world um, that's invisible, um, what are its limits, but what are its promises. And I'm so excited about that right now. How about that? Hooray for podcasts. May um, it be uh, not only new productions, but people looking for things to listen to will hopefully um, find their way to some of the great collections of, uh, of, of radio comedies and dramas and work them into their rotation. Well, Kathy Fuller-Seeley, the book is Jack Benny and the Golden Age of American Radio Comedy. It's delightful to talk with you. It's delightful to relive this era. And uh, it's important, as you mentioned, all these recordings are up on YouTube now, but now your book gives us so much context of the story behind it uh, about what made them work and what made them so enduring. So thanks uh, for the book, and thanks for your time today. Well, thank you so much, Nathan. Kathy Fuller-Seeley is the author of Jack Benny and the Golden Age of American Radio Comedy, winner of a special jury prize from the Theater Library Association. Fuller-Seeley is professor of communication at the University of Texas at Austin. She is also the author of various books on film history, including At the Picture Show, Small Town Audiences, and the Creation of Movie Fan Culture. I'm Nathan Birma. This is New Books and Communication Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.